Well, good morning, Arbor. How are we? Good to see all of you. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. And so, as Allison said earlier, these are the faithful few, huh? The first real test of the year, a Seahawks game at 10 a.m. and an uh, Arbor Church service at 10 a.m. And you all have chosen the better portion. You have. And so a blessing upon all of you. May God richly bless you with every heavenly blessing from above. And if you're watching later, that is a live in-person blessing only. It does not apply. Only here and only right now. Um, So good to see all of you here today. Um, Last fall, uh, I was having this conversation with a really close friend of mine. And he just kind of stopped mid-conversation and and turned to me and, and said, how are you doing? And, and not in that like greeting sense of like, hey, how are you? But in that like deeper soul searching sense, like how are you doing? Like peel back the layers and let me know what's going on inside there. And, and I said with all of the honesty and vulnerability I could muster up, I'm fine. <laughs> so authentic, right? But then I went on and I said, um, I said, I'm okay but you know what, I'm not doing as well as I was doing during lockdown. Kind of a weird answer, huh? But, but maybe some of you have been feeling that same way over this past year, that ever since lockdown, there's been this shift, that there's been this change, and not just in the world around you, but in the vast and maybe even more complex world inside of you as well. This feeling that something is different, and maybe in that you feel stuck. And it made me think of this um, article in the New York Times that I came across uh, last year, uh, and it was titled this. There's a name for the blah you're feeling, and it's called languishing, written by this guy named Adam Grant. And in this article, he wrote this. It wasn't burnout. We still had energy. And it wasn't depression. We didn't feel hopeless. We just felt somewhat joyless and aimless. It turns out there's a name for that, languishing. Languishing is a sense of stagnation and emptiness. It feels as if you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield, and it might be the dominant emotion of 2021. Hmm. And I might add to that 2022 as well, right? And I think this is what I and many others have been and were feeling over the past couple of years. You can kind of think of it like this, like a continuum. And on one end, you have depression, and on the other end, you have um, uh, flourishing, and in the middle there, you have languishing. And today, this morning, where would you put yourself on that spectrum? Where would you put yourself on that continuum? Be honest this morning, because I think many of us would find ourselves in that messy middle of languishing. And it's hard. It's, it's been culturally hard in this moment to live and exist, but it's also been spiritually hard, I think, for so many of us. We've been reflecting and we've been asking really tough questions. Why have things changed inside and around me? What, what's going on in this world? Why, why is there such divisiveness? Why is there such anger? And not just in the world around us, but, but even in our own church. And we wonder, is this it? Is this the answer? Is this worth it? And add on top of that all the personal things that we're wrestling with right now as, as prices for gas and food and rent, and houses continue to go up as the stock market and our savings accounts and our checkings accounts and our, and our investment accounts seem to keep moving downward. It just seems like it's, it's increasingly difficult to get ourselves out from that messy middle of languishing. 
But listen, we have to get out of that messy middle. We have to. There is a time and there is a space for us to mourn and grieve and reflect, but even in that space, we can grow, we can flourish, we can rejoice, and God offers us flourishing. And that's what I want for us, Arbor. That's what I want for our community. That's what I want for you individually. This is what I want for myself personally. And listen, we can't get there by ignoring the languishing and the stuckness that we feel right now. We have to honestly acknowledge it, but we also have to move forward by faith into the flourishing that God has on offer for us. I love the way um, J.R. Tolkien says it. He He wrote this. He said, There is a joy beyond the walls of the world more poignant than grief. There is a joy beyond the walls of this world more poignant than grief. Because I think uh, the culture that we live in has built a framework for us to experience joy or what the world would call joy. That if we buy into it and we live into the values that it values, that if we prioritize what the world prioritizes, material comfort and good health and abundance and the freedom to do what we want to do whenever we want to do it, then we will experience joy. And listen, I think many of us have pursued that and we've found it, we've found it left, leaving us wanting something more. Even its most ardent and enthusiastic participants want more. It is essentially run out of joy, if it even offered joy in the first place. And what I propose is that there's a better way. That Jesus offers us a better way. A way in which we can peer over the walls of this world into the kingdom of God and experience real flourishing, real joy, real growth even amidst the brokenness and devastation that we experience in our own lives and in this world. And I believe that, that the best, one of the best places for us to find and follow after this way is in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Because this letter is essentially a roadmap to joy. We see Paul exuding joy throughout this letter. The word itself, you see it throughout the letter. We see it in 118, 125, 22. 217, 218, 228, 229, 31, 41, 44, 410, 415. That's a lot of joy, right? Five times we see it as a noun and 11 times we see it as a verb. Joy is all over this letter. It's amazing. And what's even more amazing is that, do you know where Paul wrote this letter from? He wrote it from prison, right? He wrote this letter from prison. He was experiencing this joy in an awful circumstance. And so what I want us to do as a community over these next few months is to dive deep into this letter so that we can experience resilient joy. In contrast to the easy joy that the world has on offer, joy that is uh, circumstantial happiness or what I simply call hashtag blessed joy. You know what I'm talking about? Hashtag blessed I hate that hashtag. I hate that hashtag so much because I think it's used so out of context, like hashtag blessed, just got that promotion at work, right? Or hashtag blessed, look at my beautiful family. Like Paul would not have used that hashtag in that way. Could have been like hashtag blessed, starving in prison. (laughs) Hashtag blessed, another friend martyred. Hashtag blessed, I've lost everything for Christ. That's Paul's story. That's Paul's understanding of being blessed. And what we're gonna do for these next few months is we're going to pursue this true and lasting joy 
And we're gonna ask Paul how he experienced this resilient joy amidst external circumstances that were awful. And so to clarify, when we say joy, though, here's what we mean. We mean a supernatural delight in the presence, promises, and people of God. That's what we mean when we say joy, a supernatural delight in the presence, promises, and people of God, not circumstantial happiness. And when we say resilient, we mean a joy that that persists amidst suffering, amidst hardship, amidst difficult circumstances, a joy that remains. I love the way that Anthony Lee Ash explains it. He writes this, that Paul speaks of more than just a mood. This is a deep confidence that was rooted in God's sovereign control of the universe and the assurance of ultimate victory for those in Christ. Emotional fluctuations, the day-to-day ebbing and flowing of life, would not trouble this source of joy. Statements of joy are significant given the fact that Paul was in prison, but imprisonment did not diminish his joy because that joy was grounded in something deeper. I want that joy. Do you want that joy? I want that joy. The world wants to offer us happiness based on circumstances, but God offers us something richer. He offers us something deeper. And so what we're going to do over these next few weeks as we study this letter is we are going to lean into what Paul has for us here, and we're going to ask this simple question, why does Paul experience resilient joy? And then we're going to ask the question, how can we also experience this resilient joy? And so let's begin. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out and turn, obviously, to the letter of Philippians. I've been preaching through the New English translation, and so if you're using your phone uh, for your Bible, you can just go ahead and switch over to that translation if it makes following along easier for you. But let's begin. Let's begin at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. From Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are found in Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so how many of you, when you read a New Testament letter, you hit this introduction or any introduction and you like skip through it as quickly as possible? Anybody? You just blow through? I'm I'm the only one? A few of you? Okay, great. Right? You just, you see the beginning of this letter and you're like, okay, nothing really important here, right? We're just learning who the letter is from and who it's to, and there are some greetings and some niceties, but let's get through it as quickly as possible, right, so we can get to the meat of the matter. But listen, I want to stop here, and I want to spend some time on this introduction right here, because not only are introductions tremendously important as we study these New Testament letters, but in these first few verses, we have the first key to Paul's resilient joy, Now, when you introduce yourself to someone, how do you typically do it? How do you start? What do you usually start with? Your name, right? Like, hi, my name is Ryan. And then what do you share after that? What do you typically share? Well, it depends on the context of those relationships in that room at that given time. And so let's say you were at like a business meeting. How would you introduce yourself at at a business meeting? You would say, well, hi, my name's Ryan and I work for so-and-so, a company, and I've worked there X amount of years and and I do such and such a thing there, right? You would share your role and, and your experience and why would you share that? Well, it's relevant to the context, to that moment, and it shares information about who you are and your intent. But imagine I were to go into that meeting and instead of sharing that information, I was like, hey, my name's Ryan and I kind of like hummus and I don't like it when people leave their shopping carts in the parking lot, right? <laughs> the person would be like, 
that's the weirdest introduction I've ever heard in my entire life, and I don't think I want to do business with you at all right now, because it's strange, right? We share the information that is most relevant regarding who we are and our intent in that uh, gathering. And this is exactly what Paul's done here. In fact, the same principle, what's so interesting, it applies to every one of Paul's letters. Understanding the principle of the title and the information and the credentials that Paul shares helps us understand the intent of his letter. For instance, in his letter to the first Corinthians, he was speaking into some ministry difficulties and some doctrinal issues at a crazy church. And, and, and the title that he gives there in 1 Corinthians 1.1, he says, I am Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And so his authority was being challenged. These doctrinal issues were going on and Paul gives us the most relevant information there. He says, I I was called to be an apostle. I didn't choose this and I wasn't called by men or women in a group. I was called by God himself. And so he uses this introduction to establish authority and, and, and to give himself credence for why he should be able to speak into this issue with the Corinthians. However, in his letter to the Philippians, does he choose Apostle of Christ Jesus. Does he choose that? No. What does he choose? What's the title that he chooses? It's, it's servant. It's slave. From Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. And why does, he, why does he pick this term? Why does he pick this title, this one word he picks? Slave. Why? Well, what we have to understand about the letter to Philippians is is that it was unique compared to the other letters. Nowhere in Philippians do we see Paul correcting doctrinal issues or ministry practices. This is a deeply, deeply personal letter. And he's reassuring the Philippians of their partnership and he's reaffirming God's call in their lives that he will finish what he started. And then he simply calls the Philippians to continue to press on and follow his example. He actually says this explicitly in Philippians 3.17. We'll get there in a few weeks. And what is this example that Paul calls the Philippians to follow? That of a slave, that of a servant. And so as we move forward in this first section of Philippians, remember, we're gonna ask those two important questions. Why did Paul have resilient joy and how can we have it too? And here we have the first key to Paul's resilient joy and, and, and we're faced with this question. What is my posture? What is my posture? Because this is the posture of resilient joy right here. What is the posture of my heart? Because our hearts must be positioned in the right posture if we want to experience true and supernatural joy. And what is this posture? It's the posture of a slave. It's the posture of a slave to Jesus Christ. It's the posture of service and submission, not self-interest. That's the posture of resilient joy. If we want to experience resilient joy, then we must have a heart of service and submission, not self-importance. Because is there anything more off-putting and anything more repulsive than self-importance? No, I don't think so. Um, Back in college, I used to work at Starbucks. And this is going to be the first of many, many Starbucks stories in the coming months and years. And I worked at this Starbucks, and um, I went to school in the city of Chicago. 
And so naturally this Starbucks was there and it was actually on the border of two really nice neighborhoods in Chicago, a neighborhood called the Gold Coast and Streeterville. How many of you have been to Chicago before? You've been to the Magnificent Mile, Michigan Avenue. It was kind of right there, right around the corner from the Four Seasons Hotel and it was right at the base of this luxury condominium unit called 111 East Chestnut, okay? And so needless to say, we had some customers that had some high demands, right? They were pretty picky and they were pretty self-important. Now, don't get me wrong. We had some amazingly kind, loving, generous customers, but we also had some really, really difficult ones, okay? And, and in like a legendary way, in our store, we had this really difficult customer who was tremendously self-important and his name was John. John Cusack. Do you know this guy? <laughs> I kid you not. John Cusack would come into our store. He lived in the condominium unit above us, okay? And John, if you're watching, I don't mean to put you on blast, but you were a very difficult customer to serve at the time. And listen, he would come in, and he had sunglasses on all the time, whether during the day or at night, and he'd usually come in with a group of people. And when he would come in, he would just kind of slouch in, and then he would lean against the counter with his back toward us, and then he'd place his order that way as, other, as, as his friends would place orders. Sometimes he would grab like the cookies and stuff by the cash register and like look at them and then leave them and then walk away so we'd have to pick those things up. Then we'd serve him his drink and he'd, if he sat in the cafe, he would drink about a quarter of it and then another quarter of it would be kind of spilled on and around the table and then the other half would just be sitting in the cup there on the table because obviously we were supposed to clean up after him, Right? tremendously self-important. I don't mean to sound like, like super judgmental, but can, can I make one last observation? <laughs> Is that okay? One last observation. Um, he, he, he came across deeply unhappy. Deeply unhappy. And, and, and here's why I think that's the case. I think that's the case because self-importance is a surefire way to prevent yourself from experiencing joy. Self-importance is a surefire way to prevent yourself from experiencing joy. And while my example of Mr. Cusack might be like extreme to one extent, did you know that we can all fall into this trap of self-importance? That our hearts can drift into this position of self-importance rather than service and submission to others? And did you know that it's one of the primary things preventing you from experiencing God's true and supernatural joy? The sense of, the sense of self-importance? In fact, to help us out, here are just a few indicators that our hearts are moving that direction of self-importance. Here's one. Um, I'm always irritated. Is this true about you at all? I'm always irritated. You're driving in the left-hand lane and someone has the audacity to drive the speed limit, right? <laughs> you're, in, you're in the grocery store and you're trying to buy some cereal and someone's just slowly moving through the aisle and blocking your way, right? You have a roommate and they're trying to tell you about their day and, and you're just trying to watch TV. Right? Or maybe you're a parent and you're doing some important work mindlessly scrolling through social media on your phone and your kid's trying to get your attention, right? That one cut a little too close to home, right? And I was like, oh, you're like, oh, that's me. Um, maybe you're in a parking lot and you see someone leave their shopping cart and they don't put it away, right? I'm easily irritated. Do you find yourself getting easily irritated in your life? If you do, your heart might be drifting towards self-importance. Here's another one. I'm always in a hurry. I'm always in a hurry. You're driving in the left-hand lane and someone has the audacity to be <laughs> driving the speed limit. 
Maybe, maybe you encounter an old friend in a store, and instead of really embracing that moment as like a gift to like connect with that person, you try to rush through that moment, and you say, hey, great to see you. Let's connect later with like no intent to ever fulfill that promise with that person. I'm always in a hurry. If that's the case, your heart might be assuming this posture of self-importance. Here's another one. I rarely reach out to others. I rarely reach out to others. And you have friends and family members, maybe nearby, maybe far away, and not the ones that drain you, but really good, lovely people that you enjoy being around, that you have like these vast, beautiful memories with, but instead of reaching out to them, you rarely think of them. And then when you do think of them, you kind of get a little irritated that they haven't reached out to you recently, right? Is your heart drifting towards self-importance? I rarely reach out to others. You see, one of Paul's secrets to experiencing resilient joy was the posture of his heart. It was the posture of service and submission. He was a slave to Jesus Christ, not self-importance. And this is a concept that we're gonna be unpacking in depth in chapter two of Philippians in a few weeks, but until then, would we hold on to this question? When we find our hearts drifting away from joy, would we ask ourselves this question, what is my posture? What is the posture of my heart? Is it one of service and submission or is it one of self-importance? Let's uncover the second key to Paul's resilient joy. He goes on in verse three, follow with me now. He writes this. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. I always pray with joy in my every prayer for all of you because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am sure of this very thing, that the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of, Christ's, uh, of Christ Jesus. Now, out of Paul's greeting, what's the very first thing he does? He gives thanks for the Philippians. He shows gratitude. And what is Paul grateful for? Well, first of all, he's grateful for his partnership with the Philippians. He's grateful for this church. You know, this is the first church that Paul planted in Eastern Europe. And when he went there, they received him with generosity and they brought him in and they listened to the message that he, that, that he had for them. And then when he was in prison, the Philippians were the only church to generously provide for him. They sent Epaphroditus to him. We'll see this in chapter four. Paul, in, in, in the most dire of circumstances, in prison, he could think about his partnership with the Philippians and his heart was full of gratitude. But not only that, Paul's mind didn't just go to the people of God who loved him, but, but they were drawn to the promises of God. We see this in verse six. And he uses this special device to signal that what we encounter in verse six is the most important sentence in, in that whole chunk of verses one through 11. He says this, he says, for I am sure of this very thing. Can we nerd out a bit on the Greek? Is that okay for some of you, real quick? In the Greek text, it, it says this, popoithos auta tuta. And that probably means nothing to most of you, but here's what's going on here. Literally, that reads, being persuaded or having absolute confidence of this very thing. That sentence, it actually starts not with the subject, but what it starts is it starts with the perfect participle, which here's why all of that means something. When they encountered that, Paul would essentially be changing the font of his letter. He would have been putting it in like bold, underlined, italicized, and he'd be drawing the reader's attention to this idea 
And what's the idea that Paul is drawing the reader's attention to, drawing our attention to? He's like, you cannot miss this right here. It's the assurance that God, the author and originator of life, will be faithful to complete the work that he started. He wants his readers, he wants us to see this truth and be impacted by this truth that God will not abandon us. He will not abandon you. The work that he started in you was not a mistake and he will finish it. What's also cool about that section is that Paul doesn't refer to God as God or Lord right there. In verse six, what does he call God? Look there again. He calls him the one who began a good work in you. That's what he calls God right there. The one who began a good work in you. It's known as an alias expression right there. Let me ask you, what do you think about when you think about God? What comes to mind when you think about God? Is it that he's good and kind and loving and encouraging? Maybe you're in a season of flourishing right now and that's how you're experiencing God right now. Or, or maybe he seems far off. Maybe he seems distant. Maybe he seems cold. Maybe he seems like he doesn't care. Maybe you're stuck in that messy middle of languishing or you're stuck in a season of depression and, and you just feel like God could care less about your situation. And so when you think about God, that's what you think about when you think about God. I remember I was so impacted when I first read A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy, and this line has stuck with me ever since. In this book, he writes this, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to your mind when you think about God? And here's why it's awesome the way Paul kind of crafts this uh, description of God this way right here, because by referring to God this way, Paul is constraining our minds to think about God in a very specific way for the context of this portion of the letter and the whole letter right here. Paul is declaring here that despite the overwhelmingly difficult circumstances that he faces and that the Philippians face and that you might face right now that God is still in control and God is accomplishing what he started in you. What he started in you was not a mistake. He will bring it to completion, this good work that he started. And so as we continue to pursue resilient joy, we are now given another important question to ask ourselves and that's this. What is my perspective? What is my perspective not just what is my posture, but what is my perspective? Because our perspective has the potential, just like our posture, to determine whether or not we are going to experience that true, deep, lasting joy in the Lord. And what is this perspective that Paul has? Well, it's this. It's a way of life that fixes our focus on our partnership with other followers of Jesus and the promises of God, not just our problems. Adopting God's perspective on our unique situations in life, whether good, bad, somewhere in between, whether a season of flourishing or depression or stuck in that messy middle of languishing, it requires, listen, that we give up our wrong perspectives, that we abandon our wrong perspectives on our situation and our wrong perspectives on God and choose to fix our mind on the people and the promises that God has supplied for us in order to support us to move us forward. What is my perspective? 
Paul goes on in verse seven and he says, it's right for me to think this way. And then in verse eight, he says, I I want you to think this way as well. He encourages us to think this way as well. And so it's simple, right? Stop thinking about your problems, right? Stop it. Just stop it, okay? Like right now, it's, oh, stop it, right? Easy, right? No, of course not. How many of you are familiar with the pink elephant paradox? Have you heard of this before? The pink elephant paradox. I mean, you've, you've probably heard about this before. Um, and rather than explain it to you, we're just going to try it out real quick, okay? So, so just quickly close your eyes. I know, I know. Just close your eyes. Nothing too weird is going to happen right now, okay? Close your eyes. Don't think about a pink elephant. Don't, okay? You can think about anything else in the world, but do not think about a pink elephant, okay? Now open your eyes. How'd you do? How'd you do? What'd you think about? Most of you thought about a pink elephant, right? Yeah? All right, so here's what the paradox says. I know it's kind of silly, but it simply says this, that trying to suppress a thought is actually more likely to make that thought more intrusive, right? That trying to suppress a thought actually makes that thought more likely to be intrusive. And listen, here's why I bring this up. We struggle with this paradox and we struggle with this problem when we try to shift our perspective from focusing on our problems to adopting a more God-facing perspective on, on who we are and who God is and about our situations. And so how do we fix that? How do we wrestle with that? What is God calling us to do? Well, right here in these first few verses, we already have a very practical step, and Paul models it for us at the very beginning. We already observed it. And what is the step that Paul models at the very beginning? A section that is filled with delight in his partnership with the Philippians and this sense of rest in the promises of God. What does he do? Look at verse three again. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Paul's perspective shift begins with gratitude. With gratitude. In order to begin our shift uh, of our perspective from fixating on our problems to instead seeing things the way God does, and when we fix our mind on our problems, it always leads to unhappiness, right? Until those circumstances shift and change a little bit, and then we have that momentary relief and sense of happiness until our minds move on to the next and newest problem. And there's always another problem, isn't there? There's always another problem. And instead, what if we were grateful? Because gratitude compels us to set our minds elsewhere. Gratitude propels us, as Paul wrote to the Colossians, to keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, keep thinking about these things, not things on the earth. This is the real power of gratitude in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. Gratitude is the beginning of a perspective shift off of our problems and onto the perspective of God. And this week, this week, what would it look like? What would it look like as you start your day if instead of reaching for your phone first thing in the morning, even before you reach for that first cup of coffee, what if you just paused for five minutes and spent time in gratitude with the Lord? Maybe still grab that cup of coffee, that's okay. Maybe that'll propel the gratitude in the moment, but what if instead of fixating on your problems, what if instead of thinking about all the things that had to get done that day, dwelling on that feeling of stuckness that you have right now? What if you just paused and and you were just grateful and you said, God, thank you. Thank you, God, for another day. Thank you for allowing me to live in this beautiful world. Thank you, God, for the breath in my lungs. 
Thank you for the relationships that you've surrounded me with, God. Thank you, Lord, that you promise that you will finish what you started, even if my heart is full of fear today, even though I know I'm going to fail, that you promise that you will finish what you started. What would it be like if we started our days with gratitude? Even just five minutes. What would that look like? Here's, here's what I think that would look like. I think it would start to look like a, a, the beginning of a major perspective shift for each and every one of us where our minds dwell less on our ever-shifting circumstances and more and more on the presence and the promises and the people of God. That's where true, resilient joy is found, and that's what we're after. That's what we want. And Paul, he, he wraps this letter up, these last few verses, verses nine through 11. Let's read these real quick. And I pray this that your love may abound even more and more in knowledge and every kind of insight so that you can decide what is best and thus be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. And so here in this first section of Philippians, we see Paul and he perfectly models the posture and perspective of resilient joy, and it culminates at the end of this section, not by Paul seeking anything from the Philippians. He's not asking for more money. He's not asking for them to pray for him. He prays for them. And this prayer that Paul prays for them, it is devoid of self-interest. It is entirely in service of these people that he loves so much. It is rooted in the promise that God will finish what he started. And this is what he seeks for this church, for the Philippians. And listen, Arbor, this is a prayer that I want us to be praying over ourselves over these next few months as we study Paul's letter to the Philippians and pursue resilient joy. This is, this is the prayer. This is what I want for us. I want us to continue to grow more and more in love and love that's not simply rooted in sentimental feeling, but in a deep knowledge of who our God is and who we are in him. Would this be our prayer? In fact, would you all stand with me right now? What I want us to do right now is I simply want us to pray this prayer together as a church family for these weeks to come. Let's pray this together now. Father in heaven, is it on the screen? Here we go. Let's pray this together. Yeah. Father in heaven, we pray that our love will flourish and that we will not only love much, but that we will love well, that we will learn to love appropriately. Help us to use our minds and test our feelings so that our love is sincere and intelligent, not simply sentimental. Help us to live a life of love, one that is authentic and faithful. Help us to live a holy life that abides in the life of Jesus, resulting in the fruit of righteousness, all for your glory and praise. Amen. Amen? Amen. Amen.